Hello and welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast, episode 21. Let me begin with apologies. There was an unavoidable delay getting started again, an unavoidable delay named COVID. Uh, But worry not, I'm back in studio and feeling right as rain. Uh, Public service announcement, uh, get your booster shot. And, and while I'm on a roll, another apology. Uh, last time around, I promised a forgotten Bible, but I've decided to hold off on that for a while and to do a little history instead. So this course is called Misunderstood Christianity, a history course dedicated to re-examining elements of Christian history that are frequently mischaracterized or forgotten altogether. In this episode, we're going to look at religion in Imperial Rome and the Emperor Constantine. Uh, Next week, it's the so-called Dark Ages, followed by an episode dedicated to the time before the Reformation. Finally, in the fourth episode of this course, we're going to look at the Labor Church movement, clearly in the forgotten category, and well worth a look. Before we begin the tangled world of imperial Roman politics, uh, let me uh, remind you that there is a website located at p2.ca slash podcast. Oh yes, and thank you for joining me. We begin, appropriately, with an extended quote from Edward Gibbon, famous for his 1776 work, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbon will appear again before this episode is over, but for now I share a quote that describes the golden age of Rome, the era of the five good emperors. He wrote, If a man were called to fix the period in the history of the world during which the condition of the human race was most happy and prosperous, he would, without hesitation, name that which elapsed from the death of Domitian to the ascension of Commodius. The vast extent of the Roman Empire was governed by absolute power under the guidance of virtue and wisdom. The armies were restrained by the firm but gentle hand of four successive emperors, whose characters and authority commanded respect. The forms of the civil administration were carefully preserved by Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, and the Antonines, who delighted in the image of liberty and were pleased with considering themselves as the accountable ministers of the laws. End quote. Today, of course, we would ponder these happy and prosperous Romans and say, well, unless you were a slave. Yet, with that in mind, we can concede he has a point and add that you might need to look beyond the time of Gibbons, even as far as the late 19th century, to find an era where so many free people enjoyed so much prosperity and relative peace for so long. Gibbon's quote will no doubt resonate with fans of the film Gladiator, uh, a notable attempt to revive the sword and sandal epics of the 1950s. In Gladiator, Russell Crowe plays Maximus Decimus Meridius, a favored companion and possible successor of the dying emperor Marcus Aurelius. 
Aurelius was the last of the five good emperors, and like the movie, is succeeded by his useless son Commodius, ending the Golden Age. The film gets most of the details of the story wrong, but it does hint at a critical ingredient of Roman success. The emperor adopts a son who might best lead Rome. Commodius is a biological son, succeeding his father, and everything goes downhill from there. The other good emperor I should mention is Trajan, too often overlooked, but regarded by many as the greatest emperor of all. In fact, from the time of his death uh, until the end of Rome, every new emperor was blessed with the words, may he be luckier than Augustus and better than Trajan. Trajan ruled from 98 to 117 of the Common Era, expanded Rome to the very peak of her territorial limit, including the conquest of Dacia and all the gold found there, uh, undertook extensive public works, strengthened civic administration, and extended social welfare benefits for Rome citizens. So revered was Trajan that a legend developed that 500 years after his death, Pope Gregory managed to resurrect Trajan just long enough to baptize him into the Christian faith. So we have a period of peace and prosperity where the emperor and the senate chose the best possible successor to become emperor. This was followed by the imperial crisis, or the crisis of the 3rd century, with some 25 claimants to the position of emperor in 50 years. Generals and others would wait for the death of the emperor, or simply murder him, uh, claim the imperial throne, and engage in civil war until the matter was settled. Murder, claim, fight, hold, die, and repeat. Then came Diocletian. Diocletian, who reigned from 284 to 305, was finally able to end this destructive pattern. He was a general, as were many of the recent emperors, but rather than try to cling to power, he decided to share it. He appointed a co-emperor, Maximinian, and added another innovation, emperors-in-waiting under the title Caesar. This meant four men were ruling instead of one, with two in the senior position and two in a junior or training position. Rather than wait to be murdered, he prepared the succession in advance by returning to the old way of selecting good men for the future. Now, before we put Diocletian on a chair and carry him around the room, uh, we should mention that he was the sponsor of the last major persecution of Christians in the years following 303. Spurred on by his Caesar, Galerius, uh, Diocletian uh, withdrew the rights of Christians and legislated that they should sacrifice to the gods as a way to assess their loyalty to Rome and the emperor. Thousands were killed, and many more led double lives until the Edict of Milan in 313, which we will look at in a moment. If you are busy wondering uh, when on earth we're going to get to Constantine, then wait no longer. 
In 305, Diocletian decided to retire from the office of emperor and urged his co-emperor, Maximian, to do likewise. They stepped aside and were replaced as co-emperors by Galerius and Constantius, father of Constantine. It was assumed by all involved that Constantine and Maximian's son, Maxentius, uh, would move into the position of Caesar's, but they did not. Galerius had two others in mind, and somehow his view carried the day. In his disappointment, Constantine fled to Gaul and then Britannia to join his father, who was busy trying to subdue those pesky Britons. Constantius was near death when he named Constantine his successor and then died. It was in uh, York, Aboricum, in July of 306 that Constantine was declared the new emperor. The news was not met with joy by Galerius or the two Caesars, and a civil war followed. It was in the vicinity of the Milvian Bridge, an important crossing north of Rome, that Constantine defeated his former co-claimant, Maxentius, and it was there on October the 28th, 312, or perhaps the day before, that Constantine had a vision of the Cairo symbol, a sign of Christ's blessing in battle. Now, uh, before we jump too far ahead, I want to pause for a bit and talk about religion in Rome. Romans were profoundly religious insofar as they were dedicated to the daily rituals related to the gods. It was not concerned with morality in the sense of personal behavior, except when it came to devotion to the Roman state and later the emperor. To give you a bit of a snapshot, then, let's imagine we're walking along a busy Roman street and we arrive at our front door. Moving toward the door, we're mindful of Janus, the Roman god of doors. Janus, of course, gives us January, the beginning of the year, which also makes Janus the god of beginnings and endings, and the god of transition, such as leaving the street and entering the house. Now, uh, you touch the doorknob and you think of Cardia, the goddess of handles and hinges, also a protector of children who spend much of their early lives within the walls of the house. Stepping over the threshold, you ponder Lamentinius, the god of thresholds, who also gives us uh, the wonderful word liminal, that in-between place. I could go on, but I won't. I simply want to underline that daily life in Rome was infused with religious practice. They were similar in many respects to Jewish practice uh, in the sense that they believed that when the entire community held up the rituals of religious practice, the safety of the whole community was enhanced. The Romans uh, were also very tolerant of other religions, uh, except Christianity, which we'll come to in a moment. They would absorb gods and rites into their practice, something they did from the founding of Rome itself. 
they were particularly taken with Greek gods, something uh, you no doubt learned in the ninth grade when you had to memorize that chart of Greek gods and their Roman equivalents. I don't know if they still do that. Um, And as an extremely conservative society uh, dedicated to preserving the existing order, they were respectful of old things, particularly in the religious realm. This explains why Judaism was the only religion that was given exemption to the various laws around emperor worship. It did not, however, prevent Jews from open revolt at various times in this period. Christianity, on the other hand, was new, and the Romans hated novelty or anything recent. Add the fact that Christianity was a death cult dedicated to an executed peasant, and it was most attractive to slaves, former slaves, women, and displaced persons, you begin to see why conservative Rome might reject it. Despite all this, Christianity explodes onto the Roman scene in the first three centuries of the Common Era, expanding throughout the empire among the groups I just described. It was not continually or uh, consistently persecuted, but remained the scapegoat of convenience when things were tough, see Nero. Uh, Most often, the common people worshipped quietly, with the occasional leader singled out for persecution or the periodic destruction of churches. The nobility, or anyone with a thought to advancement in Roman society, stuck with the old ways. No one, however, banked on Helena. Constantine's mother was either a maid, a concubine, a common-law wife, or a wife to Constantius and a Christian. When Constantius was offered advancement to the imperial court of Diocletian, he divorced Helena and married Theodora, the daughter of Maximian, the future co-emperor. Helena and Constantine, who was now in his teens, uh, were sent off to the imperial court of Diocletian in modern-day Turkey to be protected, more like watched, by the emperor. As an aside, Helena was also born in Turkey, though the exact place is unknown and fits the definition of poor, displaced, female, and socially backward. Her faith in Christ was almost inevitable based on uh, the criteria I set out before. The fact that medieval British historians claim she was born in Essex uh, should likely be ignored. The reason I chose to highlight Constantine in a study called Misunderstood Christianity is the extent to which Constantine is blamed for the transition of a church of underdogs pursuing a pure form of Christianity to a state church with power and all the problems that come with it. It became popular to blame Constantine for all the excesses of what we call Christendom, the state-led domination of the Christian faith, leading to everything that we've come to question— the Crusades, the missionary enterprise, even the dominance of cultural Christianity in the public realm. In some ways, Constantine is a placeholder or shorthand for the movement from outsiders to insiders. 
He is officially the first Christian emperor, though this can be argued. He was the first emperor to intervene in church affairs, though this can be seen as good or bad depending on your perspective. And he gets blamed in some quarters with being the author of the beginning of the end of Rome, another unsupportable claim. First, let's look at Constantine as the first Christian emperor. He was of the deathbed school of Christianity, something we'll see in the Middle Ages, where the person in power remains unbaptized while doing the dirty work associated with getting and keeping power, then accepts baptism at the very last moment. There's no doubt that he was influenced by his mother's faith and was respectful of the church throughout his life, but he held baptism at bay. He also maintained the official Roman religious offices required of an emperor and honored the gods in all the right moments. It should also be said that Constantine was not the first to declare the empire's official tolerance for Christianity. That was Galerius in 311. And he didn't make Christianity the official religion of Rome. That would be Theodosius uh, I in 380, long after Constantine's death. In terms of church affairs, we know that Constantine was deeply troubled by schism and the idea that this emerging religion could be divided by seemingly simple questions like Christ's presence at creation and the legacy of bad priests. He forced unity, even presiding over the Council of Nicaea himself, in order to bring order to the church. Very briefly, Nicaea answered the question of whether Jesus proceeds from the Father or if he was present from the beginning the Arian controversy. Uh, There was a time when the sun was not, uh, the Arians said. And the other, the Donatist controversy, where some believed that the sacraments of discredited priests and bishops were no longer valid, which of course would cause chaos. Both ideas were suppressed. Finally, the, the beginning of the end argument is that Constantine ushers in the religion that zaps the vitality of Rome and eventually leads to its ruin. This argument was popularized by Gibbons in the 1770s and 1780s and is more a reflection of the Enlightenment notion that reason rather than religion should lead humanity forward. Along with Voltaire, Rousseau, countless other Frenchmen, uh, Enlightenment thinkers were looking for a turning point when history moved from reason to superstition and found it in poor Constantine. Remember from the beginning, uh, he said, the vast extent of the Roman Empire was governed by absolute power under the guidance of virtue and wisdom. End quote. The Golden Age, in Gibbon's mind, an age of virtue and wisdom, gave way to the weakness and corruption of the Christian Empire, and the seeds of destruction were sown. The counter-argument is that the Roman Empire of Constantine actually persisted, in the East at least, for another thousand years. And even in the West, the empire never really fell at all. It 
simply transitioned into something less structured and a little more chaotic. Gibbons, you could argue, took his own distaste for religion generally and his dislike for the Roman Catholic Church in particular and laid that at the feet of the Roman Christianity of Constantine. I'm going to stop here and thank you for joining me and invite you to join me next time for a look at the so-called Dark Ages. Bye for now.